The Old Testament reading comes from Exodus 33rd chapter, verses 12 through 23. The caption is, Moses and the glory of the Lord. <clears throat> Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And the New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. The caption is, A crippled woman healed on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and donkey from the stall and lead it out to get, give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for eighteen long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what had what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted from all the wonderful things he was doing. This is the inerrant and infallible word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. And we will return in the sanctuary to the passage we read with Mike a few moments ago from Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 10. Before we look at this passage, let's pray together. Our Father, we bow as men and women, young and old. We bow before you as your priests. We're a congregation of priests. 
Our Father, you've called us to be prophets to Fayette County, Shelby County, to take God's word to the world around us. But you've also told us to be faithful priests, to continually bring the world around us to you. And so we bow. Our Father at Christ Presbyterian, we thank you for how you have blessed this congregation through independent Presbyterian in Memphis. How you have blessed us. They have touched, that church has touched every part of the life of this church. So we thank you for our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers of independent. We pray for independent that you would bless Sean, bless Father the leadership, the elders, the deacons, the staff. We pray that that church might be a great light and continue to be a great light in Memphis. Father, we pray for Christ Presbyterian this morning. We ask that you would continue to nurture, to grow us. We thank you for our leadership, the elders, for the deacons. Our Father, we pray that here in this place, you would build a church that shall be an anchor church that would set forth your word in power in Fayette County for generations to come. Now, Father, we pray for those among us who are hurting this morning. I pray for Priscilla Turner and Billy Griggs, for Jim Bennington. Father, you know their needs. You have blessed them all of their lives. And we pray now that in a particular way you would draw close to them, that they would know your grace, that they would know your presence, that they would know your comfort. Father, I pray for my family. I pray, Father, that you would speak to us as only you can speak, that you would continue, Father, to bring comfort by the power of your Holy Spirit through the people that are in this room that have been such a blessing. Now as we turn to your word, we pray that we would hear your voice in our hearts. That we would turn from the present circumstances and just be aware of the power of your word in our lives. For the glory of Jesus Christ, for the glory of his gospel, and for the glory of his church, we pray. Amen.
Is Jesus interacting with you in this place? Interactive is a word, a buzzword in our present generation. Interactive computer games, interactive comic books, interactive football, basketball, baseball games, golf games. The reader or player becomes an active part of the story, an active part of the game, and has something to do with the outcome. As I watch Jesus in the setting that we read with Mike this morning, I could not get that out of my mind. Watching him interact with the people in that synagogue. You need to know that in Luke's record, this is the last time we see Jesus in the book of Luke in a synagogue. And we see him in an intimate, with an intimate view, interacting with the people there. Now, I know that this passage has to do with the Sabbath. That's the major subject of this passage. Today, we're going to ignore that. This is a debate that had been going on between Jesus and the Pharisees, a battle that had been going on between Jesus and the Pharisees, his entire ministry. We will see it again in chapter 14, and we'll talk about the Sabbath, their view of the Sabbath. The the grace of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, stood juxtaposed to their view of the Sabbath. And we'll see that in chapter 14. But I want us to take us this morning to this scene with Jesus in the synagogue. Why? Because what he did that day in that synagogue, that same Jesus does when he meets with his people here on the Lord's Day morning. In this room, Jesus was interacting with the people in that synagogue, and he's interacting with us this morning. It brings us to our first point. It's very simple. Jesus met with his people in worship, and he still does. Look at Luke 13.10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. How many times do we read that in the Gospels? Go back to Luke 4.16 on your scripture sheet. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. On Sabbath day, Jesus would take Matthew, Peter, and John. He went to the synagogue. They, they, They said he's going to a synagogue wherever he is. Jesus was delivering delivering a powerful message to his disciples. Every Sabbath, he was right there with his people, right there with Israel. That's how Matthew and James and John would remember him. They They all went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And what did Jesus tell them? Guys, every time you gather in my name, I will be there. 
It's like I was in the synagogue. Look at Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. What a promise. What did John say about it? In 1 John, in his letter, in chapter 1, the third verse, we read this. This is what John says. We proclaim to you that we have seen what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. Now look at that next sentence. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with the Father. What is that? We have a relationship. We interact with the Father. We interact with his Son, Jesus Christ, in this room. That's what John was saying. When Janet and I were in Israel, we, we visited Capernaum. That was where Jesus lived. When Jesus left Nazareth, he went to live at Capernaum. And there are the, the ruins of the synagogue at Capernaum. And we stood in that synagogue, and it was something to be able to say, you know, Jesus stood right here. I enjoyed being there. It gave me perspective. But we have something better. We don't go to Capernaum to stand where Christ stood. But on the Lord's day, we gather to stand where Christ stands. He is here in the power of his spirit. We're able to meet with him. Jesus met with his people in worship. Secondly, I want you to see he was teaching his people that day, and he still is. Look at Luke 13.10. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. He was leading. He was teaching. Jesus is teaching this morning. Look at John 16, 13. Speaking to the disciples, this is what he said. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Jesus was saying, Matthew, James, John, my Spirit will come. I'll meet with you. My Spirit will be there, and I will teach you. What did Paul say? What did Paul say to the Corinthians about his preaching? He was saying, you're not hearing me. You're hearing the Holy Spirit. You're hearing Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Well, what was Jesus teaching that day? Well, did, did people put words in his mouth? Did Jesus stand before them and said, tell me what you think? Did he say, you know, I, I want to be the best Messiah I can be. What do you think I ought to do? What do you think I ought to say? What do we always hear the people who heard Jesus speak? What do, he spoke with authority. He spoke with authority. He spoke with power. 
Sometimes he chooses to speak words that hurt. Look at verse 17. And when he said this, he said something. We'll see what it is in a moment. All his opponents were humiliated. We've seen it over and over again in the Gospels. Sometimes even his disciples did not like what he was saying. It hurt. In our society, we're seeing this. We are quickly coming to a day when ministers and teachers will be humiliated by our society if we speak the words of Jesus. There will be laughter. There will be scorn. I'm about to read from Romans 1, 24. Many folks in our society would want to put me in jail if I, when, for reading this publicly. Jane, Jamie and I were speaking of this last night and what our children will face with this. This is Romans 1, 24. Therefore, God gave them over in, sin, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Our culture wants to say that a minister or teacher who reads those words publicly should be guilty of a hate crime. Do we hate homosexuals? No. My, uh, the friends I have that are homosexuals would laugh at that idea. They know that I believe this is a sin. But we can't, uh, we must not abandon the truth that Jesus speaks definite words. He was teaching in the synagogue. And there were words of grace and there were words that wounded. And someone comes to me when I've said something in the pulpit that has upset them. And they come to me. And when I, when I do that here, I hope you'll come speak to him. Uh, first, I try to understand if they really heard what I was saying. And if they heard what I was saying, then I ask them, tell me, am I being faithful to Scripture? Here's God's word. Where was I unfaithful to Scripture? I want you to show me because I don't want to be. The day I'm unfaithful to Scripture, I want you to show me. And if they say, well, it's in Scripture, I would say, well, was it God speaking to you or was it John Sartell speaking? If it comes from Scripture, you've got to deal with God, not me. I didn't write it. He did. Well, some folks will say, well, I can live with the words of Jesus. I love the words of Jesus. But it doesn't mean that I have to listen to all that the Scriptures say. You ever heard that? Well, listen to Jesus. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'll tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
when we come to this place, we bow before the Son of God. We bow before the Father. We bow before the Holy Spirit of the living God. And we say, teach us. Teach us. Even if it wounds, you teach us. James Michener wrote The Source. In that novel, he tells a story of a man named Erbel who lived 2,200 years before Christ. Erbel worshipped two gods, one a god of death and the other the god of fertility. In the story, the temple priests tell Erbel that if he wants good crops, he must come to the temple along with others and sacrifice his young son. Erbel obeys. And on the appointed day in Mishnah's store, he drags his wife and boy to the scene of the boy's religious execution by fire to the God of death. After the sacrifice of Erbel's boy and several others, the priests announce that one of the fathers will spend the next week in the temple with a new temple prostitute. Erbel's wife is stunned as she notices the great desire that comes across her husband's face. And she's overwhelmed as she sees him lunge forward eagerly when his name is called. When the ceremony's over, she walks out of the temple, confused, and she says this, if he had different gods, he would have been a different man. You see, folks, it really does matter what Jesus is saying. His word changes our lives individually. His word changes our homes. His word changes cities and towns. Changes families for generations. His word changes civilizations. What was it she said? If he had different gods, he would have been a different man. Jesus met with his people in worship. He still does. He was teaching and he still is. Thirdly, he met individuals in worship where they were and he still does. Look at verse 11. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Hey, you're there. You see this. This woman is in pitiful condition. She's bent. She cannot look people in the eye. And she had been this way for 18 long years. Then there was the ruler 
of the synagogue, arrogant, proud, legalistic. Jesus met both of them where they were. One needed healing and comfort. The other needed correction and humbling. Two very different people, two very different needs, and Jesus spoke to both of them. Now, I don't know how this happened. I've, I've told you this before. I don't know how Jesus does this. I, I write all of my sermons out verbatim in full. So I know what I said. And someone will call me and say, you know, you really helped me. A man will call me and say, you really helped me in my role as a husband this week and what you said. You say, that, that just really helped. And I go back and I look at the message. And I didn't even use the word husband or wife. And somebody calls me and says, "You, I was really convicted about how I use my tongue. I, I was really convicted about my gossip. And I go back and I look at the message, and I can't find it. It's not there. Somehow, speaking from his word, he speaks to each of us where we are. You know that. You've experienced that. Jesus met with these people in worship and still does. He was teaching his people and still is. He met individuals where they were in worship and he still does. You know, that synagogue ruler, he didn't need to repent before Jesus came to him and met with him to tell him and deliver a message to him. He comes to us. I, I don't care what it is going on in your life, how bad it is. He can meet with you. And speak with you about the darkness of your sin or about the pain and hurt of your soul. Fourthly, Jesus showed no favoritism according to rank, and he still does. Look how both Jesus and Luke made this woman the center of attention. Eleven times in six verses, this woman is mentioned. That Jesus treated the women around him drastically different than the typical male of his culture. He was unique. The synagogue ruler truly, truthfully, there was a prayer that was often prayed in the synagogue. God, I thank you that I'm neither a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. And yet here was Jesus. In this bent, hurting woman living in humiliation. And she was the one. He didn't call to the synagogue president, the president of the synagogue, the leader. And you look and you say, you know, maybe he should have been more diplomatic with that ruler in the synagogue. He was a powerful man. But Jesus shows no favoritism, no matter what your rank is. This poor woman, she walks in and Jesus' immediate focus is on her. We need to see that. Sometimes we walk through those doors and we feel like a leper. We feel just overcome and overwhelmed by our sin. We feel like the outcast. We feel like the fly on the cow's tail. And here's Jesus, and he reminds us we're made in his image. 
image, in God's image. Here's Jesus reminding that us that we're so precious to him that he died for us. Sometimes we come through those doors, all of us do, with our theology, with our spiritual experience, with our arrogance, with our morality, with our large check, with our position or prominence, with our spirituality. And Jesus reminds us that we this world naked, we will leave naked, and everything we receive in between is from you. I would like to have known Grantland Rice. He was born in 1880 and he died in 1954. He was probably the most well-known sports writer of the 20th century. He was born, uh, you, you say, I know about Grantland Rice. Well, did you know he was born in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, that he went to Vanderbilt? He was the one that made the Army-Notre Dame game a great rivalry. After he became famous, he showed up to the Army Notre Dame game and he had lost or misplaced his press pass. So he couldn't get in the press box. He he bought a ticket and went in and sat with the crowd, sat there with his notebook and pencil. Afterward, he worked his way up to the press box. His peers were amazed that the great Grandin Rice, Granny Rice, had sat down with the folks in the stands. One of them said to him, Granny, why didn't you throw your weight around? Tell them who you were. Everybody knows you. Why didn't you throw your weight around? Grantland Rice was known for his humility. And he looked at the man and said, you know, I just don't weigh that much. You know, that's how we ought to come in through those doors every time. We're not weighty, folks. Not before God. There's Jesus in synagogue. And we can learn from that. That's where our focus ought to be. This bit, old woman, humble, probably poor. And Jesus called her out. Jesus met with his people in worship and still does. He was teaching his people and still is. He met individuals where they were in worship and still does. He showed no favoritism according to rank, and he still doesn't. You might have missed this. He was aggressive in confronting needs and sins, and he still is. Look in verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Verse 15, the Lord answered him. You see it? You know, people came to Jesus asking to be healed. This woman did not ask to be healed. She was lost in the crowd. He was the aggressor. Lady, come here. I'm going to change your life. You're not going to be bent any longer. And even the president of the synagogue was not addressing Jesus. Jesus turned to him and rebuked him. He was humiliated before his own people. Jesus was aggressive in both situations. He'll be aggressive with you. If you've got that sin that you're hiding in your life, trying to keep it from other people, 
the one person you can't hide it from is Jesus. He already knows. And if you're in his house, he's going to talk to you about it. C.S. Lewis said this. Some people speak of their search for God. Some people speak of their search for God. They might as well talk about the mouse searching for the cat. You're not saved because you got aggressive with Jesus. You're saved because Jesus got aggressive with you. It was the Father who gave his own Son. It was God himself who came in the incarnation. Talk about aggression. G. Aiken Taylor was a friend of mine. I'm going to ask you a question. Does anybody in this congregation remember G. Aiken Taylor? That shows you how old I am. G. Aiken Taylor was one of the founders of the PCA, the denomination to which this uh, church belongs. Uh, he, was, he was a true warrior. He was an editor of a church-wide uh, magazine. Uh, and if you had been a Presbyterian, whether you, whatever side you were on, uh, if you had been a Presbyterian in 1955, you would know who G. Aiken Taylor was. You should. Uh, later in life, he talked about a time he lived in North Carolina and in the mountains. He talked about uh, going off, taking only his Bible and going off to stay by himself on a mountaintop in a cabin for a week. And he came back, and I, I knew him. He came back, and he was significantly changed. And he said about that, quote, you can determine the text with which you come to Jesus, but you cannot determine the text with which Jesus will come to you. I can't say it any better than that. You can determine the text with which you're going to come to Jesus, but you can't determine the text that Jesus will bring to you. Jesus met with his people in worship, and he still does. He was teaching his people and still is. He met individuals where they were in worship and still does. He showed no favoritism to rank, and he still does it. God was, Jesus was aggressive in confronting the needs and sins, and he still is. And finally, his theology was characterized by mercy and still is. Look at verse 15. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? The Pharisees, the ruler of the synagogue, had a highly developed, exacting theology. Much of it, much of it was based on God's word. But their theology, that theology was allowing this synagogue president to treat his animals with more mercy than his fellow worshipers. That's a serious error. As you look at the theology of the Pharisees, the one great thing that was missing was mercy, was grace. 
the theology of Jesus. If you walk into a church, there are several things, and you want to know what kind of church it is. Listen to the preacher. Is God's word being preached? Is it being preached in power? That tells you something. But look at the congregation. Is the joy. There is an older gentleman, one of my mentors that used to tell me, John, never trust a man who doesn't smile. Never trust a man who doesn't laugh. There's a great truth in that. And I wouldn't trust the church one iota. I don't care if the word of God was being preached. Something's wrong if there's not laughter. Laughter. Joy. What's the fruit of the spirit? Love. Joy. It's the second. And then ask yourself. Are the people of that church full of mercy? Are they full of grace? I pray that this church will forever. I pray that the day that the word's not preached from this pulpit, that the church will be closed. Because it ceased to be the church. And a church that doesn't show forth great joy and laughter. Is a church that has lost its way. And a church that does not show mercy and does not show grace. They don't know that cross. Samuel Colgate was an American businessman, philanthropist, Colgate toothpaste. There's a connection with his name. Uh, He was a Baptist, an ardent Christian. In his church, they would have services several times during the year. And would invite the world to come in. Those services were known as evangelistic services, reaching out to the world. In one of those services, it was in his church, a local prostitute made a profession of faith. She received Christ. She gave her testimony before the congregation. Everyone knew who she was. You didn't have to talk about her past life. Everyone knew. And in that place, it wasn't the elders that received members. It was the church. And she asked to be a member of that church. The minister was very hesitant. But he said, her name must be put up for membership. What do you say? And there was an embarrassing silence. She was standing right there. Finally, a man rose. and He made a motion that the matter be tabled. They give, be given time to think about it. At that point, Samuel Colgate stood 
and with some sarcasm said these words. I guess we blundered when we prayed that the Lord would save sinners. We forgot to specify what kind. We'd better ask him to forgive us for this oversight. The Holy Spirit has touched this woman and made her truly repentant. But apparently the Lord doesn't understand that she isn't the type we want him to save. You know what happened. Same thing that happened in the synagogue that day. The people were embarrassed, humiliated. And she re received into the membership of that Baptist church. When I wrote that, when I typed it, I thought about an old gospel hymn. Probably most of you don't know it. I bet Mary Elizabeth does. It's called At Calvary. At Calvary. Mercy there was great. And grace was free. At Calvary. See, Samuel Colgate got that from Jesus. And anyone that really knows him will get it too. There's only one hymn to sing after a message like this. And to sing it humbly. And that's amazing grace. But before we do, we're going to stand and pray together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.